Today's scripture is from Genesis 1, verses 1 through 31. And since this is a bit of a longer passage, if you need to sit down at any point during the reading, please feel free to do so. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits bearing and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with the swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea 
and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. You may be seated. Kids, pre-K to second grade, you're now dismissed to Grace Kids. Parents, please go along with them. So, uh, as you have, may have heard in the e-news or on Facebook, we, uh, the next two weeks, I am going to take one sermon and dedicate it to one book of the Bible. So this week is Genesis, next week is Leviticus. The, actual, the plan originally was that I was going to do the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch seemed like a good, good five, but we called an audible in April and did our missional confessional series. So that had to, those three weeks had to come out of something, and so we picked for, for it to come out of here. So we're only doing two books, but my hope is that I get to pastor this church for a very long time, and that when I'm done, there will, we will have preached through um, most, if not all, of the books of the Bible at various points of, of the year, excuse me, uh, during my time here. It's, for me, I think it's really important that we understand the main point of each book of the Bible. I think it's important that every Christian should be able to, in a sentence or two, describe the main point of each book of the Bible. You know, and the Bible is one story from Genesis to Revelation, and it's more than just the Roman road. And I'm not, I'm not minimizing the Roman road. That's certainly in there, but there's more to it than that. And, and for us to appreciate the whole story, we need to know the whole story. We need to be able to see the forest for the trees. So that's kind of why I want to spend a week this week on Genesis, next week on Exodus, um, because it's important for us to see it this way. So Genesis is a book of beginnings. Like if, you, if, you, if, if you want your little phrase for Genesis, a book of beginnings. It's the beginnings of a lot of different types of beginnings. We're going to look at these different beginnings. But beginnings are really important. I mean, the beginning of the story is a really important part of the story. What if every, you know, if you said every movie, uh, I'm going to watch over the next year, I'm going to start 20 minutes late. You're going to know the end of the story, but because you don't know the beginning, you're at best going to be a little bit confused and at worst totally lost. I mean, I was on an airplane this week, and, if, and you know, there was one of those old ones. They started the movie for you, and it was 30 minutes in before I was able to actually engage, and I thought, no, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. If I don't have that beginning, I don't want the rest of the story. And the same is true with, with the Bible. We, we may, if we, if we ignore Genesis specifically, or the Old Testament, we're going to know how the story ends, but we can't appreciate the ending because we don't appreciate the beginning. About 10 years ago, I was in another country, and I was talking to this older lady, and she was asked, she asked, what religion are you? And I said, I'm Christian. And she said, no, I mean, what type of Christian? And I said, well, I'm, I'm Protestant. And she said, oh, you're, you're one of those Christians that only believes the New Testament and Psalms. I was like, why? no, why would you say that? She said, because I've seen you missionaries going out and just handing out the, the New Testament and Psalms. And she's right. I mean, that, that, the, the practice in some parts of the world is to hand out just the New Testament and Psalms. And sure, I guess that's better than nothing. I mean, I don't, I don't know the thinking by maybe it's there's so many words in the Old Testament maybe it costs too much money I don't know maybe they wanted to jump straight to Jesus fill in the gaps later but when we don't know the beginning it makes it really hard to know why is it that I need Jesus if we don't know 
the Old Testament, specifically Genesis. So we have to appreciate and, and, and embrace all books of the Bible, especially the very beginning. So there are a lot of questions in the book of Genesis. I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe Genesis and Revelation, like most questions on the bookends. The, the middle we can, we can understand more clearly, but on, on your first reading, you're going to get the most questions from those books. I actually posted yesterday on Facebook, I, I'm going to preach a sermon on Genesis. What would you like to hear? What, what questions would you like to hear addressed? Like 99% of the things that were posted will not be addressed today. It's just... <laughs> I don't have, that's not what I have time to do, nor is it important for the main point of Genesis to understand what's going on. My hope, though, is the main point would be clear that maybe we would be motivated to go back and read the whole book. Maybe in one sitting, it takes about three hours to read the, the whole book in one sitting. But before we dive in, let me give you a really quick outline of how Genesis breaks down. You have 50 chapters. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 on God, creation, man, and what we call the fall of man. I'll explain that in a little bit first three chapters. Chapters 4 through 11 cover a huge period of time from Adam to Abraham. It includes characters like Noah, things like uh, the flood and the Tower of Babel. Then the time, so we're like going fast forward, fast forward, chapters 4 through 11. And then when we get to 12, everything slows down. Actually, my first seminary class was on Genesis Joshua. And I remember my professor, Richard Pratt, he said, he said when time slows down in, in, in these narrative books, you need to really pay attention. And so in chapter 12, everything slows down. And from chapter 12 all the way to 50, we follow one family. Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, who would be called Israel, and his son Joseph. And that's the rest of Genesis. And so what we're going to do, I want to look at Genesis. And I remember, book of beginnings... I want to see the beginning of creation, the beginning of our problems, and the beginning of God's people. So those are the three things I want, to, I want to look at. First, the beginning of creation. So Genesis tells us that God spoke creation into existence. He didn't think about it. He didn't snap his fingers or wiggle his nose if you're over a certain age. He, uh, he didn't... He didn't like sculpt creation, he spoke it into being. And there's a whole nother sermon or series of sermons on communication and why he spoke it. We're not going to do that, but it's important. He spoke and he created the universe. And by his words, the earth was created and the seas and the land and the animals in the sea and the animals in the land, the animals in the air, and ultimately us. All was created by his word. And as he created these things, as you heard read, he would, he would create something, say, it is good, it is good, it is good. But then he got the, to the pinnacle of his creation, humans. And he looks at all that he has created and he says, it is very good. Humans are different. He gets to humans and he says, these are made in our image. We are made in the image of God, uniquely able to love and be loved, and it separates us from all the rest of the created order. Now, there are a lot of questions about how to interpret Genesis chapter 1. And these questions, some were on the Facebook feed, some I've just interacted with for a long time. Questions like, are these six literal days, or are we to read the poetry as something longer than six days? How do we account for dinosaurs? How do we account for evolution? How do we account for light that we know took billions of years to arrive from those stars? Is the, old, is the earth old? Is the earth young? Did God create a billions year old earth and universe a few thousand years ago? Um, these are good questions and I'm not gonna answer them. 
but I do want to give appropriate guide rails to this conversation because there are some certain things that we have to understand when it comes to Genesis 1. The first thing we have to understand is there was an original audience. The original audience, they were asking questions that God is answering through Moses. That original audience are the Israelites who are wandering toward the promised land. And they have been enslaved and told by Pharaoh that Pharaoh is God's son, that Pharaoh speaks for God, that, they, that their relationship with God was not a good one. They just needed to serve Pharaoh. And so they, from, and then they, they have these, these promises they've heard about, about the promised land. They don't know like, is God really going to do this? Does it apply to me? So they're asking all these questions. Who is God? Who's the real God? What's our relationship to him? Who's made in his image, if anybody? What are the promises that he's made? What will he do for us? What does he want for us? What does he want from us? Those are the questions that the people, the original audience are asking. And these are the questions that this book is answering. But do you know what question the book isn't answering? Was Darwin correct? Nobody was asking that question. And I'm not saying there aren't some how questions that we can answer from this, but we can't ask Genesis to answer questions that nobody in the original audience was asking. So there are some things that we can learn about how. I'm not, I'm not saying there's not, but I'm just, that's not the point of the book. So we don't need to get lost on that part of it. So there are about five acceptable, I, think I would call acceptable um, interpretations of creation. Five that are taught in most conservative seminaries, five that are all acceptable because they hold these things in common. They believe in a literal Adam and Eve. We need to believe in a literal Adam and Eve as our very first ancestors. They were made in the image of God without sin. Those, those are the really important things. That, I mean, there's some other things we can disagree on, but we have to believe a real Adam and Eve, really our descendants, really made in God's image and really made without sin. Those are the main guide rails that we are given uh, in Genesis chapter 1. So however you interpret, interpret Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, those things have to be true. So we look at the beginning of creation. And what I want to do as we look at these three beginnings, I want to see the beginning and then I want to see what can we learn about God, the character and the nature of God through that beginning. So we look at the beginning of creation and I see power. I see a God who is all-powerful, who, who spoke all of this into creation just from a word. I see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all in, in, from the very beginning. I mean, God the Father speaking, God the Spirit is hovering over, over the, the depths, God the Son, we're going to see in a little bit. They're all here and all the, the persons of the Trinity are here. You look at all that God's created. You go to places like the Grand Canyon or you look at the stars. You have to see this was created by someone powerful. I got to go to the Darien Rainforest in Panama last week. And this is the most dense rainforest in the world. And you look at this rainforest and, and you see trees that look like something out of Jurassic Park. You're waiting for a raptor to run out at, at some point. You have, you have butterflies that are almost as big as your head. You have these lizards like this tall and they walk on water. They call them Jesus Christ lizards. And then, you know, you look out. I mean, at night you can see more stars than you could have ever imagined. Hundreds of miles from any kind of civilization. And you look at all these stars that you can never see in Orlando, Florida. And then you think about the fact that that's just compared to all that's actually in the universe. That's, everything that I see is like a drop of water in the Pacific Ocean. And you have to think this was a powerful being 
who created all of this. And not just all of creation, but us, sentient people in his image who live and love. For the record, I'm pro-science. And there's this idea that like, to, to hold a, these views of the Bible, you're, you're anti-science. Science and the Bible go together. Now, I think for right now, we're limited because we only understand so much about creation. So there, science, and I don't mean this like condescending, science will one day catch up with the Bible. They, 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 they agree on these things. And part of the problem of science is over the past few hundred years, science has started out by taking God off the table. There can be no initial being, now let's figure it out. Which actually a lot of science is coming around to realizing that's a problem and they're now opening themselves back up to an initial being. But anyway, you can't make conclusions without proving these things. So science and the Bible agree. I really believe that and the more we understand about God's creation, the more we're going to see it, it agrees with what God has given us. Ray Ortland, I think it was like a week or two ago, uh, he said, Genesis 1-1 did not make science possible. Genesis 1-1 makes science inevitable. The Bible does not suppress thinking and discovery. It arouses thinking and makes discovery plausible. So just think about our world without this kind of powerful God. Everything that we observe, it, if we let it alone, it drifts towards disintegration. It, it, it disintegration, deterioration. When you leave it alone, it falls apart. That's, that's a, something we just observe everywhere. Yet, when we go over to the creation of the universe and earth and everything else, we hold, tend to hold something that's totally opposite of everything else we've observed. Everything we observe, we leave it alone, it drifts towards disintegration. Nothing proves that more than the back of my minivan. You leave it alone and it just, it, it, it's, it's gonna fall apart completely. But when we come to the cosmos, we think there are these, these space rocks floating around and all of a sudden they're gonna operate differently. They're gonna drift when left alone towards more complexity, towards more integration. It, it, that's not the world that we observe. This world requires a powerful being to get it going. And this is exactly what we see in the word of God. God of the Bible is that being. He spoke this creation into existence. So that's the beginning of creation. Now I want to go over to chapter, chapter 3 and see the beginning of our problems. God created Adam and Eve. They lived in perfect harmony with God. This is chapter 2 and 3. Perfect harmony. They could do anything that they, that they wanted except one thing. They could not eat of the tree, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's desire for Adam and Eve is that they wouldn't know about evil. They wouldn't experience evil. That they would live in harmony with him forever. That's what God wanted them to do. They had one rule that they could not break. But under the influence of Satan who had already rebelled against God, who had already been judged under his influence, they eat. They broke the one rule that they could never break. And that moment changed everything for Adam and Eve, for creation and ultimately for us. And that's what we call the fall of man in Genesis chapter three. And here, you know, I'm talking about what, what are the essential things we have to hold on to in Genesis. Amidst other places we may disagree, here we see another one. Not only do we need to believe in a literal Adam and Eve and uh, that they were really made in God's image, they're really our ancestors, they really didn't have sin, we have to believe in a literal fall. Without this fall, the rest of the Bible just doesn't make sense anymore. There's no reason for the rest of the Bible. So they hid from God after this fall. They used to enjoy communion with God in the garden. Now God comes and what do they do? 
They hide. They're ashamed. They, they, they now live in a world of shame and pain and ultimately death. And R- Paul in Romans 5.12 tells us that all people who come from the line of Adam and Eve, which is all people, we are born into the same world of pain and death. And we are born with the same rebellious hearts that are always going to think about what's better, best for us over what God wants. So then in Genesis 3 and Genesis 7, we see the two first great judgments on the earth. Genesis 3, God bans Adam and Eve from the garden. He gives them curses. Work is going to be hard now. Childbirth is going to be hard now. Now you will die. And then you go fast forward to chapter 7 and you see the second one was a flood that killed all humanity. So Sin came into the world through Adam and Eve. That sin then began to spread because there were more people. And you see the world operating in a total counterway to the way God had designed it to flourish. You see, you see Abel, or you see Cain killing his brother Abel. I mean, how contrary to God's design is a man killing his own brother. And as these people spread throughout the earth, you get to chapter six and God, we see that with them sin spread and it gets to the point where God actually laments even creating people because of the sin that we brought all around the world. And so we see God chooses Noah and some other people, and he saves them, but he uses his flood as the great second judgment to address the issue of sin. Now, God knew that wasn't going to address sin, but I think he did it for a purpose to show us some things that we'll see in a second. But before we get there, we need to ask ourselves, what is it that we can learn and understand about the character of God from this part of Genesis, from, from this, these judgments in the beginning of, of our problems? The main thing we see is that God is holy. He is holy and because he, holy, because he is holy, he cares about sin. He has no tolerance for it. He's not some powerless God that, that creates the world. It doesn't go quite as he expects, so he just kind of lets it spin as it may. He is engaged in this world. He cares about this sin. He's devoting himself to fixing this problem. And before we go any further, we have to just stop and ask ourselves, do we realize that we're sinful? Like we're so sinful, we deserve the curses that came in Genesis 3. We deserve the curse that came with the flood. We deserve all the curses you will see anywhere in the Bible because we are sinful. We naturally think about ourselves first before God. And it's not, I've said this before, it's not a disease that we catch. This is our posture. We desire to think about ourselves before what God wants. And that is called sin. And because we have a holy God, he cares about that. And sin is such a problem that if you know the story, you know the flood doesn't fix it. (laughs) Because after the flood subsides, what is the first thing, seemingly, the first thing that Noah does? He gets drunk and there are problems. And you realize all, all this didn't quite fix the problem. So God makes a covenant with Noah. He says, I will never again destroy the earth by water. And as a sign of the covenant, he puts a bow in the sky, a rainbow signifying putting, the putting up of a weapon. I will, I will n- not do that to you in that way again. And I don't think it, God didn't get caught off guard when a flood didn't address the problem. He's reinforcing to us that as long as there are people, there's the problem. So you can't rid the world of sin without ridding the world of people. That's the lesson of the flood. So God in his grace chooses to fix it in a different way. And this is how we get to the beginning of God's people. So Noah 
He had his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. They begin to repopulate the earth with sinful people. And then when we get to the beginning of God's people, I do want to say I'm, I'm drawing some directly from a sermon that Mark Dever gave on, on Genesis. And he makes the point that in Genesis chapter 12, we have the most crucial event in human history between Adam and Christ. So in between Adam and Christ, what happens in chapter 12 is the most important event. And that thing is the call of Abram. Who, who we would later know is Abraham. So in chapter 12, he calls Abram as the beginning of God's chosen people. Abram was a, a pagan nomad. You know, God could have chosen some dynasty that exists, exists somewhere, somewhere else. He could have chosen some, some great culture, but he chooses this nomad. One, one pastor I read said, there's a reason you don't, you're not studying Abrahamic architecture. You know, he didn't, God didn't choose what we would consider to be the grandest or the greatest. He chose this pagan nomad, Abraham. And then in chapter 15, he makes a covenant with Abraham. He says that through you, I want to make you my people and your descendants my people. Through your descendants, the world is going to be blessed. So that's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And this is the rest of the story of Genesis. We're in chapter 15 now. And from 15 all the way to 50, we're following that family. We're following the beginning of God's people. And we'll follow it from Abraham to his son Isaac to his son Jacob, who will then be renamed Israel. And then finally to Joseph at the very end. So what are the three, there, there are three things that I, I want us to see about God's character as we walk through that family lineage. I want us to see that God is committed to our holiness. So we've already seen that he's holy. He's committed to our holiness as well. Secondly, that he's merciful. And thirdly, that he's sovereign. We're going to see those three things as we walk through the rest of the story. So first, his commitment to our holiness. All right, so we've got to go back here to God's call on Abraham. When he calls Abraham, he, commit, he commands Abraham that Abraham and his people will be holy as God is holy. They will be holy because God is holy and he cares about holiness. And so he begins to take this, these new people and separate them from the world around them. And so he has rules like who you can, can and can't marry. He's not gonna, God says your men cannot marry Canaanite women. And the purpose isn't just that God's like, isn't, at all that God's against interracial marriages. That what's going on is the heart. God knows they live in this land where these women who do not love God, and if, if Abraham's offspring are marrying those women, they will have a negative effect on the heart. And so the same principle is true today. You hear Paul saying it in, to the Corinthian church, Christians, you can marry anybody you want, any race, ethnicity, tribe, tongue, or nation, so long as they love Jesus. <laughs> that, that's the criteria. It's a heart issue. And so that's what's going on in the beginning. You see, because God cares about our holiness, he begins to put certain, um, he begins to put certain boundaries on his people. So if you're single or if you're a kid, you know, I know there's temptation to, to, to date somebody who's not a Christian or marry somebody who's not a Christian. Maybe, maybe you really want to get married and, and you have these non-Christian options, but right now there's not a Christian option and it can just feel like God's, God's taking something away from you. But that's not what's going on. God is trying actually to keep you close to him. Have you ever heard the phrase, he, he's only human, 
or maybe you've used it. I'm only human. I mean, it's kind of a way we use to justify our sin. I'm only human. I mean, how can you expect me to have the garbage can to the curb every Monday and every Thursday? I'm only human. It's a hypothetical situation. We use it as a we use it as a way to, to to communicate that to be human and to be sinful are just synonymous. But God does not have that avant-garde view of sin. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them fully human and fully sinless. To be fully human is not to be sinful. God cares about this. He wants us to be holy because he's holy. And so one of the things he does with Abraham is he has the beginning of his people is he begins to reinstate these designs all the way back from the beginning of creation that are meant for human flourishing. And a lot of that has to do with our sexual integrity. And so we see that the design is that we should have sex with one person of the opposite sex who loves Jesus in the covenant of marriage for the rest of our life. That's what God is reinforcing in Genesis. So if you're dating somebody who's not a Christian, you should stop. If you're sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse, you should stop. God's calling us to sexual integrity because that's a big piece of human flourishing. All right. As we continue to follow Abraham and his family, we not only see he's committed to our holiness, we also see that he's incredibly merciful, which if you think about it, those can sound like contradictory things. You either have a God who really cares about holiness or a God who's all about forgiveness and mercy. Like, I don't know how, how they go together. But as you follow the story of Abraham and his family, you see the greater the call to holiness, the greater mercy is on display. So there's a, when God judges sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, that's, that's a declaration of his holiness, but there's still a lot of mercy in that Lot and his family, they get to, they get to go. Or you can go to Abraham, go back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. The way that you ratify a covenant back in that day is you took animals, you broke them in half, and you made a path with the parts of the animal. Both parties of the covenant walked through and they were declaring, may that happen to my body if I don't fulfill my parts of the covenant. But that isn't what happened with Abraham. God causes Abraham to go to sleep and God walks through, taking on the full burden of fulfilling the covenant. There's a lot of, he cares about our holiness, but he, he's merciful at the same time. You can look at mercy in, in the chapters 10 and 11 in the Tower of Babel. This is the first time humanity comes together and what do we accomplish? When we come together, we accomplish a, an incredible declaration of our own arrogance and pride and sin and that we want to build a tower up to heaven. We're gonna reach God. And God comes down and he judges Babel. He, he, he confuses all the languages of the earth so that we can't interact anymore together. And if you think about it, if that's what we accomplish when we all come together, a massive declaration of our sin, ignorance, arrogance, and pride, then praise God for the mercy he gives us that we didn't get to continue to exist that way. There's mercy everywhere. Or look at God's command when he... When, when he called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son, his only son he had been waiting on. They're walking up the mountain and Isaac says, we're going to sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham somewhat prophetically said, God will provide a lamb. And they get up there and just before Abraham has to pull off the sacrifice, what appears? A ram, not a lamb, but a ram. God provides, it's merciful. So you see these calls to holiness and in every single one you see mercy. 
And God isn't merciful because he has to be. He's merciful because that's who he is. That's what, what he wants for us. And I, the reason I know that is because of the last thing that we see about God's character in Genesis. Not only uh, is he committed to our holiness, not only is he merciful, but he's also sovereign. God can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. That's how I know, and we can all know that he's merciful. Not because he has to be, because he wants to be, because God can do whatever it is that God wants to do. So we've already seen his sovereignty in creation and in the judgments in the garden and Babel and the flood. But now we see his sovereignty through his pursuing of this beginning of his people. So he goes and he, he calls Abraham. Again, he could have chosen anybody else, but he chooses Abraham. And he doesn't choose his brother Nahor, he chooses Abraham. Then who did he choose? He chooses Abraham's son, Isaac. He could have chosen Ishmael. He said, no, I'm going to choose Isaac. Then he chooses Jacob, who will become Israel. He could have chosen his brother Esau, but he chose not to. God is choosing his people. He's sovereign over whose people will be. And he protects them along the way. You know, you see, you see his sovereignty in King Abimelech, who wanted to do something inappropriate with Abraham's wife, Sarah. God intervened in his sovereignty to not allow that thing to happen. He even goes so far as to tell Abraham, by the way, just so you know, your people are going to be enslaved in a foreign land one day. He's sovereign over all things. He's not just reacting. He knows what's going to happen. He wills it to happen, and it happens for his glory and our good. I mean, you can even see it in the, in the genealogical tables. You know, you see all these genealogies. In these genealogies, there are only three women who are declared barren. They can't have children. And those three women are the three wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. The three women who have to have kids for, for this promise to happen. The very three are declared barren. It's like God just setting the scene for everybody to see I'm sovereign over everything. Nothing can stop the promise that I've made to this man. And maybe nowhere uh, is this more on display than in the life of Joseph. So we come to the end of Genesis, we see Joseph, he's the youngest of Jacob's sons. He does seem like kind of a naive, immature kid who really gets on his older brother's nerves and you know, his older brothers sell him into slavery. So there's a lesson there, don't irritate your older brothers. Older brothers don't sell anybody into slavery either, but God permits this thing to happen. Remember, we're talking about his sovereignty here. God, uh, in God's sovereignty, Joseph was sold into slavery into Egypt. He ends up in whose house? I see a lot of mouthing. I can tell you know it. Potiphar's house. And in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife wants to do something very inappropriate with him. He runs. He does not want to engage in that kind of inappropriate behavior. So she then claims that he was the one being inappropriate and he goes to jail. And I always, I want to pause here and say that every time I have heard this story taught, uh, it has, and I, I'm not saying I've heard everything out there. I'm sure there's some really good sermons out there. But when I've heard it taught, it's like it, the application is men stay away from these kind of evil women. They are going to drag you down. That's not at all what's going on here. What you see here is a power dynamic. You see a woman with power and a man who doesn't have it. She wants it her way. And he either has to do what's wrong or be unjustly accused. That's what's going on here. So he wants to follow God and honor God. So he has to suffer for it because he doesn't have any power and he ends up in jail. But in God's sovereignty, it's in jail 
that he receives these dreams. It's in jail that he's on Pharaoh's radar that these dreams begin to bless all of Egypt. He begins to let the Pharaoh realize there's a famine coming. Then he's taken out of jail. He's brought into the Pharaoh's house and rises to be the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And when that happens, he doesn't use his power the way that Potiphar's wife used her power. He uses it for the good of others. So when the time comes, there is enough food, not just for all of Egypt, but also for the nation of Israel when Joseph's brothers come asking. So the brothers come over. They've heard in this famine Egypt, they have food. And then there's this moment where they realize Joseph is the number two guy here. (laughs) This is not going to go well. We we sold him into slavery. There's no way that he is going to be good to us or nice to us. He is in every, he has all his rights to just carry out his revenge on us. And in Genesis chapter 45, verses seven and eight, we see what Joseph did with this power. When his brothers realize who he is, they're scared of his revenge. But Joseph says, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He sees God's sovereignty. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And the brothers thought, all right, well, that maybe that's true. We all know your dad's still alive. Maybe you just don't want to see your dad Jacob or Israel see you do something wrong. So we'll keep the status quo. But then when Jacob dies, they're really scared. (laughs) They're thinking, well, now is Joseph's time to take us out. And this takes us to Genesis 50, 20. So by the way, when I, when I posted on Facebook, you know, everybody, there's all these things people want to see in Genesis, none of which I was able to cover. But Genesis 50, 20 was one of the things that came up over and over again. Tom Long was one of the people who put it there. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph could have done whatever he wanted to Potiphar's wife. He could have done whatever he wanted to his brothers. He was wronged. He now had power, but he didn't. Instead, because he believed in a high view of God's sovereignty, he did not feel the need to take out revenge. He knew that God, he didn't know how specifically, but he knew the whole time that God was going to work this for, for his good and for God's glory. And so if you're here today and you've been wronged in some significant kind of way, if you feel this urge towards revenge, let me, let me try to point you towards a God who understands your evil, who knows what it's like to be wronged, but is using all these wrongs. And it's not, it doesn't justify it or make it right, but he uses these evils for good. He did it with Joseph and he will do it with you. And you, you know, you, I don't expect that you have to have any more understanding of what God is going to do with that evil than Joseph had in jail. We just have to know that he will because that's the kind of God he is. He's a sovereign God. And then Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Joseph dies and his body is embalmed. He is put in a coffin, but he is not buried. He gives specific instructions that one day, now, and before I say this, just imagine you're the original Israelite audience. You're wandering, you're wandering toward the promised land and you think about this finish to the book of Genesis. Joseph says one day God will give his people the land that he promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. 
and then you bury my body. So this book ends with this sovereign theme that God is going to do what he said he will do. He is going to finish what he started. He is going to be faithful. So that's, that's Genesis to the original audience. But we as New Testament believers, we get to take it one step further. We get to see how God in his power and his holiness and his mercy and his sovereignty was all the way back in Genesis preparing the day for Jesus. Jesus wasn't like this plan B that God came up with thousands of years later. He, it, it, Jesus isn't something that we have superimposed on this text. If you go through Genesis, you see Jesus all over the place. I mean, one of the most common and easy places to go to see Jesus is Genesis 3.15. After the curse in the garden, there was a curse on man, there was a curse on Eve. But what I didn't read is the curse on Satan. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, that is the offspring of Eve, will bruise your Satan head and you will bruise his heel. So God is saying there is one who's coming through the line of Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph who will put you in your place, who will crush your head. And that one is Jesus Christ. Remember I said we see Jesus here. This is the, the eternal second person of the Trinity who has always been. He put on, took on flesh to come here and live the life that none of us could live, to live a tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, only to go to the cross to be killed in our place. And at that moment, you have to think Satan is thinking, this is my biggest win. The son of God has come, taken on flesh, and now he is dead on the cross. But when Jesus resurrects, that win is a crushing blow to Satan because the one tool he had in his arsenals, the just accusation of our sin and that is taken away for any of those any of us who believe in Jesus Christ so now what Satan thought was this great win is actually more like a bruise on the heel to the offspring of Eve and it is the death blow for Satan's ability to accuse us of our sin against God and so on the cross we are declared every bit as righteous and holy as Jesus himself. And on the cross, God's power and mercy and sovereignty all come together, not for our judgment, but for our redemption. All right, now to finish, let's go back to the covenant with Noah. Do you remember what he said to Noah? I will never again destroy the earth by water. <laughs> you don't have to be a New York City lawyer to see a big loophole there. I will never destroy the earth again by water, but he is going to destroy things by fire. He is going to destroy sin. Sin will be destroyed forever, but those of us who believe in Jesus, he is our ark that will get us through. The early church always made these correlations between the ark and the flood and our, our passage through that fire. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better Joseph who will willingly take on trials and false accusations and harm for our salvation. You see Jesus all over Genesis. In Jesus, the bow in the sky points up towards God and not towards us. In Jesus, in Acts 2, the curse of Babel is reversed. And instead of, instead of confusing languages, we are once again united in our ability to understand each other. In Jesus the true lamb that Abraham prophesied is provided, the true sacrifice. And one day Jesus is going to 
hand over all of creation and us to God the Father even better than it was in the beginning. Where we will enjoy an eternity with him without sin, the way that he designed for us to be. He isn't just going to smite us all, which he could have done. He is going to redeem us. And he can do that because he is powerful, he is merciful, he is loving, and he is sovereign. So the story of the beginning is ultimately the beginning of the story about Jesus. And so when we know that beginning, we can appreciate why it is that we need Jesus, and we can appreciate all the wonderful characteristics and the nature of God who would do all these things for us. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful to be able to see the beginning of the story long before any of us existed, to be able to understand how we contribute to all the problems in this world and to know that the ultimate answer is Jesus. I pray that this would would really seep into our souls, that we would just relish and bask in your power and your holiness and your mercy and your sovereignty, and that we would take seriously your concern for our holiness. God, I pray that that would not be a burden, but a gift, that we would be excited about those things that would make us more into the image you want us to bear, and that it would make us more fruitful in the the mission that you've called us to. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.